Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley. Listen to the Inside Carolina podcast sponsored by Johnny T-Shirt, JohnnyTShirt.com. On the beat. That means I've got Ross Martin and Greg Barnes with me. Before we start, let me take a a chance to talk about uh, subscribing. If you're watching on YouTube, click the link, subscribe to the Inside Carolina channel. If you're on iTunes, Spotify, or however you consume your podcast, uh, subscribe to those as well. Also, rate us and review us. Leave a question on there. We'll ask a question off the reviews. We'll do whatever. It helps us move up the algorithm to get Inside Carolina higher up the food chain on the Apple and Spotify podcast lineup. With On the Beat, Ross Martin, Greg Barnes again. Ross Martin, tell me about covering a game in the COVID world. Sounds like it was quite interesting on Saturday. Yeah, I mean, there was no traffic driving in. Let's start from the beginning. No traffic driving in. Cruised in. You know, I, I felt like I was a little late. So I was like, oh, usually, you know, you're rushing if you're a little late because you don't want to get on rolling game time. But, you know, I got there about an hour and a half before maybe an hour before and you know no one was in line from for um the check they checked my temperature at a 94.7 which means i should have hypothermia walked in got my credential walked up the elevator they only allowed two of us in the elevator at a time i was by myself there's no elevator attendant there usually is walked in found my spot was next to greg had my mask on and then from there i mean there was less people there was no food but outside of that i mean I felt like people were kind of acting the same and I was talking to friends, kind of distancing myself, but you had your mask on the whole time. And obviously that limits some communication with people next to you and your, your buddies and Greg and whatnot. But uh, I think the biggest thing was just no fans. And you just, that was very noticeable, obviously. And that changes the dynamic of the whole game. I don't know. I watched some games on TV. I think in on TV, it's less of an impact because you hear the, some of the sounds they pipe in and you're on the field, you see the field on TV, but in person, sorry, I'm like choking on some hummus. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it was different. I, I didn't really, I don't know. I don't know what Greg thinks, but I didn't, I didn't really mind it too much because we don't interact with fans anyway. You know, we're in a quiet press box and other than the limited amount of people in there and the lack of unlimited food and cookies, Don Callahan usually gets like six stacks of cookies at halftime and we get you know chili cheese dogs other than that i didn't think it was that big of a deal from a media standpoint other than the zoom press conferences which is which we're kind of used to now so you know we've been doing that for six six months greg i asked you when i found out that they wouldn't have any sort of personal interaction on the press conferences or interviewing players uh that's to me that's the whole point of covering a game i guess yep um, is the yeah. access there what was it like yeah, that, that's going to hurt um, outlets like Inside Carolina more than a lot of other ones because if you put a kid in front of a, a podium, you're going to get – I think you just naturally kind of you know, tense up a little bit, but you're also very careful in what you say. Almost you're, you're too PC. You don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, and so that, that has been a challenge uh, with a lot of these Zoom calls. I mean, it, it's – it's what we have to deal with. I mean, UNC has done a great job in giving us access. It's, it's not a matter of anything like that. It's just the situation we're in sucks. I think it sucks for everybody. And not being able to go and, and talk to players kind of one-on-one 
um, hurts. And I mean, you know, a lot of times I'll just, you'll see a horde of reporters go and ask the general questions to players. You wait for that group to kind of dissipate after the first four or five minutes. And then the player's kind of sitting there with maybe one or two guys around him. Then you can say, okay, well, you mentioned this to these guys. What happened on this particular play? Why was the breakdown there? Why did you have success there? And because it's really like a one-on-one conversation, you get a much more thorough, much more honest, open answer. And, and that's a big key. I mean, the example that popped into my mind for whatever reason is the Garrison Brooks, Grayson Allen incident uh, years ago. And uh, that was the one that Ross, wasn't that the one where you went in and just kind of popped the question to Garrison? Yeah, that was, it was me and Adam Smith from the Burlington right. Times News. We got him alone talking about what was the biggest viral play of the game. Right. And no one had asked him that. So. Yeah. And so in a, in a press conference setting in front of a you know, Zoom call, you're not going to get that kind of honesty just because they're very careful and, and more PC in those situations. So that's, that's the biggest hindrance for us. It kind of really does hurt in that regard. But again, uh, you know, I mean, UNC is doing the best they can. Uh, you've got to protect everybody involved protocol-wise. I get it. It just kind of limits exactly what we can do. And we're going to have to figure out a way to kind of get around that in terms of getting uh, – maybe, maybe it's a matter of asking better questions to the players in, in these Zoom calls. So, so to kind of set the stage, I mean, after each game, we go from the press box down the elevator, go over to the Keenan Football Center, then up the elevator again to the fifth floor, and they bring out anywhere from six to eight players. Uh, and that's when Greg was talking about you can kind of pull a guy aside. Usually there's you – know, 20 people around the quarterback and the star defender or whatever, and you can, you can kind of get some questions with maybe another player one-on-one or at least two or three-on-one, and that's where you can get kind of deeper questions. They'll sit there and talk to you for, for five, ten minutes, and in basketball it's even better. I mean, you have Cole Anthony there talking to you for 25 minutes if, if they, they allow it, and you can really get one-on-one and get some detailed information. So instead we were all in the press box on Zoom, the same Zoom calls, with people coming in from their homes as well, people that weren't in the press box and national media as well. So you're having more people having access to it. You know, a guy like David Hale, who, who covers the ACC for ESPN, he can call into every single press uh, conference and not have to go to any games and still get kind of the ac- same access the local beat reporters can get. So that's how it's changed. Is I think you're having more national people and people who aren't doing this full time have the same access that guys like Greg and I have. That that I don't I don't like that. I mean that that sort of I mean you guys are putting the work in and these guys can just dial in, you know, sort well, of like but, sort of like I did the, today. But yeah, but, but here's the thing: they can only have so many media members attend games. I mean, I think I think the number was 17, if I remember correctly. And so if you're telling people, hey, you cannot attend, right? I mean, you have to be able to offer them access in some form or fashion and so like i said it's not a i don't say it to criticize unc at all they've, they've done everything they can do it's just a tough situation it's, and it's it's something we're going to have to just deal with um but that that's my frustration with it and it's not directed at anybody it's just a matter of kind of the global pandemic situation that we're yeah, in i mean it was fine i, I didn't have too many yeah, complaints it was fine. yeah so and then, yeah and and mark and jeremy the sids at unc have done a great job i think Yep. Oh, consistently yeah, throughout, the, throughout the whole throughout the whole pandemic yeah so. i mean and they they got a thankless job too to 
to be able to handle all this stuff. The, the one thing I remember about covering is way back, you talking about getting a player individually. I got Kent one Balmer after one of those Duke games that was really chippy. And they asked the, – the main guys ask all the questions, and then I asked some question about um, the chippiness, and he went off. Uh, I mean, he, he spoke very candidly what he thought about the Duke players, and you don't get that stuff. So, last question about it. When you get players, obviously you get Mike Brown. Do you have to request guys? Do they still do that? It, it, you know, or do you get three or four on a Zoom call and that's it? Do you have any choice, Greg? We get four. and I'm just, After the game. After the game, yeah. Right, and we – I didn't do it on Saturday, but I'm sure if, if we desperately needed to get somebody, we could, we could put in a request that, hey, we would like to talk to this person. Okay. I, I, t I texted Jeremy and Mark. I was like, can we get Tamari Fox? It just made sense. Yeah. And I think they were going to get him anyway, but I just want to make sure we had yeah. him because that's so. what I want to write about. But, I mean, they bring us the guys who make the plays. And I think we'll get Sam after every game. Yep. Yep. All right, let's talk about the actual game. Don't want to look back too much, but Greg Barnes, you do the article on the uh, grades that come out. And by the time you listen to this podcast, that article will be up at Inside Carolina and uh, folks can see for themselves. But Greg, watching the game, uh, it felt sloppy. There were some moments, some good moments. There were some bad moments. What do the grades say uh, w when you look at the professionals that do this for a living? Guys like Vahasek, Tamari Fox, I think would have great days, but, but what did they say? Yeah, well, looking at uh, the offensive point of view, I think we can all agree that the offensive line wasn't great, and, and the stats kind of – the grades bear that out. Um, it is interesting how we, we look at one particular play sometimes, however, and it skews our vision. You know, uh, awesome Richards – Everybody remembers, you know, the, the one play down there on third and – I don't know if it's third and goal or it was third and something in the red zone. Uh, and the guy just kind of runs right by him and, and gets the sack of Sam. You're like, oh, there's a freshman maybe – or I guess he's a sophomore now. Uh, not doing exactly what he needed to do in a, a critical situation, right? That was one of really like two bad plays that, that he had. Um, and so he, he graded out second highest on the offense with the 75 grade, which is phenomenal. Uh, and he was by far the, the highest graded offensive lineman. I mean, when you look at some of these other guys, uh, it, it really it, it is really telling. I mean, Brian Anderson at center was 59.2. Marcus McKeithen, right guard, 55.7. Um, let's see, Jordan Tucker, right, tuck, uh, right tackle, 51.2. So these are not, not great grades. Um, and that kind of speaks to, you know, some of the concerns along the offensive line. But – if you also look at – we know how good those running backs are, um, and I was looking at the numbers. Where did they go? Um, they had – let's see here. 62 yards uh, were, were after contact and uh, between Carter and Williams. And so when you're able to absorb contact and you know, Javante avoided six tackles, so again, wrestled free from six tackles, that's, that's significant. And in a game like this where you're so – tightly contested, at least through the th three quarters, um, that, that ability to kind of break out and, and make some things happen on your own is critical. Sam, I think he was kind of low 70s grade, so not great, but not bad, which I think is kind of what we saw. He had the real bad decision thrown into double coverage down the field that was intercepted. Um, but I think what stood out to me about Sam more than anything is how effectively Syracuse took away the deep ball. I mean, he, only made, he only attempted three passes down the field plus 20 yards 
and uh, was incomplete on all three and, and threw the one pick. So they really forced UNC to work kind of in the, in the middle area of that defense across the linebackers. Sam was effective with it. You know, that's how they got their, their touchdown is on a little drag route uh, from, from uh, Garrett Walston there in the first quarter. So they were effective in what they had to do. And, and Phil Longo even told us today yeah. that he, he thinks that's going to be something that opposing teams are going to do this season. You don't want to give up the big play. So they're going to really make North Carolina work eight to 12 plays up and down the field. And that's why execution is so important. Defensively, Tommy, um, let's see here. I've, I've got the numbers right here in front of me. If it'll just pop up. Uh, you know, the secondary wasn't actually great. Um, you do have a guys like Miles Wolfuck was the highest graded defender, 83.5. Raymond Vahasek was pretty good, 71.8. Um, Chasterat, 73.9. So all, all those guys are pretty song, solid. What was Kyler and Storm? So Kyler uh, was was not uh, very good. It was a 64. So that's kind of okay. maybe average. Uh, I mean, Trey Morrison was 47.8. Yeah. Chris mm-hmm. Renee was 44. Those are not good grades. Cam Kelly only played 13 snaps. So he didn't play much. Chapman was pretty good, 69.9. Nice. Um, and then uh, you asked about McMichael. McMichael is 64. So, uh, you know, Syracuse – I think we all saw watching that game that they had some big plays down the field they didn't connect on. Um, and DeVito makes some better passes. There's a couple of easy touchdowns they would have had. Uh, but you know, the plays didn't happen, and, and therefore we were able to see a, a blowout in North Carolina's favor. But it's just funny how, you know, again, a couple of big plays here or there uh, that we see or, or don't see really kind of changes how we view how these players played. Ross, when I listen to these grades, I've come to the conclusion that I'm not quite sure I understand how they grade this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I see Trey Morrison. I see Patrice Renee, why they're low. But uh, Vahasek, I mean, everybody's talking about his game. And what would you say he was? 71? He had a, he had a good grade. 71.8. His, so, so, his issue was apparently he, had, he was downgraded because of tackling. I guess he had a missed tackle. Yeah. I mean, you see the you see the plays that splash. We saw Fox and Tamari or Fox and uh, Vahasek make the big plays, and then you saw Asim Richards give up two hugely. You know, it was kind of a mental, either a mental or physical misassignment on the sack, and then another tackle for a loss. So, I mean, you see ones that splash. I think that's in our mind. We say, man, Asim should have had a, a really low grade, but in fact, I guess he didn't. But I don't know. The only numbers that matter to me are, are the score, thirty-one to six. Uh-oh, so Matt. there's Mac. Coach speak, right? There we go. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really interesting. I think it's interesting to look back and see how your mind thought about it versus what actually maybe happened if you really look at um, how it's graded. And as John Papuchis once told Greg, "How does PFF know what the defender was supposed to do on each play?" So I mean, they're assuming what the job was. So how do they know completely what the completely job? Maybe they did the right thing. And somebody else did something wrong that allowed that to happen. You know, there's a lot of – got to take these with a grain of salt. Um, you know, on, on assignments, who knows if that was the blocking assignment. Maybe they, they got it right or, or got it completely wrong and, and the grade was affected that way. So, I mean, is what it is. Yeah, and my, my counter to that would be uh, he's right. However, when you – I mean, they're looking at every single snap. And so, are you going to miss some? Of course you are. Yeah. You, you don't know. But over the course of a season – uh, most of the time it kind of plays out. I mean, when you, when you start looking at, you know, people who make all these award lists and people who are being drafted and who, who 
uh, get all the attention, it shows up. I mean, yeah. it shows up in, in how these grades come out. And, and that's, that's not to say that these guys evaluating are uh, elite level evaluators. I'm not saying that. But if the three of us, and this goes for any fans, if the three of us sit down and we go through each and every play and look at each and every player about whether we think they played well or not on that down, we would have a pretty good idea of who played well. Uh, mm-hmm. That's just a very time-consuming thing, and that's why we outsource that to PFF so we don't have to spend all day Sunday doing that. That's interesting. So just last question about that. What is considered – like, how do you rank those? Like, A's in high school now are 90 to 100, B's, whatever. How, how, what makes a grade good and grade bad? Where, where's that line, Greg? Uh, it's subjective for sure, but the, kind of the way I've, I've grown to look at it over the last couple of years, if you see somebody, you know, in the 40s and 50s, that means they didn't play well. 60s was kind of, yeah, okay. When you get into the 70s, you're talking about kids that played very well. And then, you know, 80s is, is – is, great games and then occasionally you'll see somebody creep into the 90s um and those are your those are your elite players i mean those are the guys the uh, justin fields and trevor lawrence's and occasionally sam howell like last year I mean, those are type of performances you're looking at drew burrow um yeah and again it's typically upper 60s 70s is is well played ross one thing and and uh, the PFF on, podcast this is PFF yeah, podcast. Yeah, this is a welcome in. <laughs> hey, listeners, tell us, do you like this information or not? Respond on this thread and see if you enjoy Greg talking PFF. <laughs> Ross, one thing that Mac didn't really get into today, and we're recording this on Monday afternoon, is the injury issues. Said nobody really got any extra injuries, um, but the four guys that were not available. Uh, is that is that going to be standard this year? As far as not knowing. Do you think that'll keep up, or was that a Syracuse week thing? Yeah, that's what I thought, but it seems like they're just going to let us know on Saturday this week, or maybe update us maybe Wednesday. But uh, it seems like there's nobody that's going to be officially out until Saturday because I think the injuries that we know right now are not super serious. Zudu, Desmond Evans, who else, Greg? Um, Um, There's two more. Two more there as well, but – yeah, so I mean, I think both all all four of them are kind of we'll see. How DeAndre Hollins, and then yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> they're gonna let us know on Saturday those guys. So I mean, Zudu's a big one. I mean, he was a starter and he's a backup for four spots, and uh, he apparently is the best offensive lineman for UNC, which I didn't really realize until I read Jason Staples and watched Jason Staples' video. He was they, one of the highest graded. <laughs> Offensive yeah, lineman in the ACC last year, according to Pro Football Focus. Well, the funny thing was, he didn't start. He didn't start until midseason. I think he started you know, seven games or something. But right. uh, Ed Montilla started over him, and so I, you know, I just didn't think he had that elite talent. But and Max is the best offensive lineman, and, and, and Jason thinks he's an elite talent. So they're obviously missing their best guy, their most versatile guy. He can play both tackle spots, and he's the starter at left guard. And I think on the left side of the line is where UNC struggles with some communication issues. That's where. I seen Richards is, and so that was uh, some of that might have been why I seen um, struggled at times. Greg, listening to Mike Ingersoll, he talked about the left and right offensive line, the deals. I, I mean, when you move guys back and forth, how much more difficult does that make it to have some chemistry, especially early in the season? Yeah, I mean that it, it's difficult, especially when you don't have all the reps in spring ball. Um, 
to be able to kind of build that chemistry. And that's, I think that's probably where you get some of the sloppiness. Um, the other aspect too, is if you're having to play, you know, I think Phil said they played seven guys for the bulk of the game on Saturday. If you're playing that small of a number, that should help expedite that, that chemistry issue. So it's a challenge for sure. But again, yeah, I think, I think the fact that UNC won Saturday uh, and they played well in the fourth quarter, I think that's all they care about. I mean, they knew it was going to be a mess. I mean, after watching some of these games, and there's been some very bad football being played. The reasons why. Uh, and so, like Bateman told us today, you're going to get better from game one to game two mm-hmm. more than anything. And so just, just check off a victory, have some good things to talk about, and move forward. Um, and, and the, especially with offensive line. Yeah, and the offense is what struggles the most in these first games because the timing – and, and even without a spring practice and a lack of an offseason, that's where the deep ball wasn't as, as crisp. Some of the receiver quarterback connections weren't as crisp. And we saw that on both sides of uh, both offenses this, uh, this week. And the, obviously the defenses are able to play. I think uh, just Mac always says that even in scrimmages, the defense always has kind of a, a leg up because they know what's coming and, and, you know, they can react rather than have to execute at a, at a really, really high level. I mean, I was impressed with the defense. I don't know if you want to get into that, Tommy, but I think that's the main storyline coming out coming out of this game is just how effective and they got some studs I think on all three levels which we haven't seen in a long time for Carolina football yeah let's talk about it let me let me take a short second and talk about Johnny t-shirt johnny t-shirt.com uh, I'm out to let Ross do this read he's become an expert at it but I, I will do it Johnny t-shirt on Franklin Street you need to visit them shop in store pick it up in store shop it online whatever you need to do just support Johnny t-shirt and if you're inside Carolina Premium subscriber, you get 10% off your everyday order. Consistently having sales. You need to uh, subscribe to their newsletter. They're always having sales, and you can't beat that extra 10%. Another short break. Let the national guys talk. We'll be right back. What's up, y'all? This is four-time NBA champ Andre Iguodala. Yo, and this is his best friend, the Ohio State legend, Evan Marcel Turner the first. Every Wednesday, we drop a new episode on our show, Point Four. We're talking basketball, business, and all the culture in between. From locker room stories to some basketball analysis from those who've been in the game. Now, it is a do-bet. Do average 29 and 11. God, shit. What'd it take to be an all-star? A win. Subscribe to Point Forward, the podcast, so you don't miss a thing. Listening to the On The Beat podcast, Ross Martin and Greg Barnes are with me. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley. Ross, let's talk about that defense you mentioned beforehand. And see, this is where my cynicism comes in because, yes, they were very good, but Syracuse's offense was very yeah. bad. And uh, there's a line there somewhere. Uh, but I agree with you. Carolina looked better on defense, at least faster on defense than they've looked in quite some time. Yeah, and I've listened to a bunch of, like, post-game podcasts already, so I feel like I'm just, like, stealing takes from whether it's you, Jason, Buck, I listen to Carolina Insider, I watched the game yesterday morning. But, yeah, I mean, hey, the offense line wasn't great, but this is a Power 5 team. It's not like they were going against Furman or, or, or some team like that. You got uh, – the Hasek was impressive. Tamari Fox was impressive. Tamon Fox was impressive. And he just, you know – made the plays you're expected to play. And then you got two really experienced linebackers, and that's exciting. The Chad Strat and, and, and Jeremiah Gimmel. I know, I think, Tommy, you said that in the, in, in the podcast on Sunday that, I mean, Gimmel really stood out to you as a player who's gotten a lot faster, more experienced, and he is that kind of leader in the middle there. So those two guys, having those, those two guys in the middle is going to be excellent for UNC. And then 
Don Chapman's open field tackling really stood out to me. I think that's a player that no one's been talking about. He started multiple games in the last season. He's tall. He's, I think, over 6'1". Um, he was making the, the tackles that in the past, guys like Miles Dorn, not to call him out or anything, that he would miss. And Don Chapman came up and made two kind of big solo tackles. And somewhere, I think, one or two were for a loss. And so those things, along with the guys that, you know, I never heard Kyle McMichael's name because I don't think they threw to him much. Or, and if they did, they, he, made, he made the stops. And uh, Storm Duck also had a couple nice um, pass deflections as well. And, and Trey Morrison was the one who got beat a couple times that Syracuse didn't connect on. So that, that was my takeaway. All three levels, you just name guys. And we've been hyping them up all offseason. And I think they lived up to expectations against what is uh, going to be, I think, a pretty bad Syracuse offense. Greg, one thing Jason Staples mentioned in that podcast that Ross referenced is he didn't think Carolina's defense was physical enough at the point of attack or tackling, um, which was a little surprising to me because I thought they I thought they were, but I'll defer to Jason on that. But I want to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, Vahasic, clearly physical, but Jason was not pleased overall with that aspect of North Carolina's defense. Well, I think there's two things. Number one, uh, Bateman gave some credence to that in saying that he didn't think they played with enough effort at times. I think the other point is that Javante Williams touched on this in, in the post game, but he had not really been tackled since December. And it works the other way, too, on, on defense. I mean, you know, the defenders are not laying hard hits in practice against their teammates. You don't want to get anybody hurt. Um, and so you, you don't – you have thud and that kind of stuff, but you don't, you don't tackle to the ground anymore. They've just kind of gotten away from that to prevent these injuries. And so this is really their, their first opportunity to, to really hit somebody in nine months. Um, and so I give them a little bit of a, a break in that regard. I think that's one of the reasons we saw some sloppy play. Um, and that you saw a couple – I mean, they had 12 missed tackles. So some of that stuff – um, same reason, you know, you, you're going to have more penalties than you typically would have in, in game one. You're just kind of getting used to things. Um, I, I do think that the defense uh, did what they needed to do. Um, I don't think Syracuse is good, uh, especially offensively. I think they're pretty bad. Um, but you still have to go out and execute. I mean, very easily Syracuse could have scored 20 points. North Carolina did not allow that. North Carolina played very well defensively. Uh, held them to six points. You take that every single day. I don't care who you're playing against. Um, and so they did what they needed to do. Can they get better? Sure. Do they need to get better? Yeah, probably, yes. Um, but so I give them a little bit of a break on that. But uh, I, I think all in all, the fact that they were able to get pressure the way they did was impressive. Uh, Ross asked Bateman in, during our interviews today, and I don't think Bateman really – exactly got what Ross was asking about. But um, you know, he really only played two down defensive linemen the entire game. And so you know, it's, it's a four-man front, but you only got two, two down linemen. Um, your, your two outside linebackers are standing up. And so whether you want to call that a 2-4-5 or you know, a, a variant of a, of a four-man front, you know, whatever. But in terms of labels, we're, we're talking about a 2-4-5. A um, and it worked against Syracuse. You know, when you get to playing some, some bigger offensive lines, is it going to be just as effective? We'll have to wait and see. But, but that speed really, really capitalized. Uh, Chastrat was all over the field. I thought Hopper did a good job. And uh, Ross's guy, uh, Rucker, he was another one who graded out very high and limited snaps. So uh, I, I thought they looked pretty good. 
Yeah, and, and on that, I think Jason said this. We're like repeating other podcasts, but yeah, Jason called it just a four-two-five essentially, which goes back to like I don't know why they don't call Tamon Fox a defensive end. You know, he lines up as defensive end on every single down, um, and so they had they had the two down linemen, which were uh, Tamari Fox and Raymond Vahasic, and they had Tyron Hopper and Tamon Fox on the ends, making it essentially a four-two-five. Tamon. And Hopper, you know, obviously didn't put their hand in the turf, but um, that's what they did. And that's going to give them more speed, and, and like Greg alluded to, but against a bigger, really experienced, good offensive line like what Notre Dame has, they're going to have to bring in probably some bigger players. That's where you get maybe Jaleel in there, and you can bring Bohasic and, and uh, Tamari more on the outside and maybe get more of Christian Varner and, and Zach Gill. But luckily that game for UNC is at the end of the season. And even Miles Murphy, who I think Greg was pretty impressed with what he did in his first college game. So the concern on the defensive line, I think, was answered by how Bohasic lived up to, his, to the hype and, and Tamari Fox. And we're yet to see how many players they can really put out there because there might be some injuries, might be times when you need a breather, and that's when you're going to need Zach Gill and, and Christian Varner and Julio Taylor to play a lot more. And I think, um, I think Boston College would be a good test because they, they always have those, those big northern offensive lines. Um, and so, What's uh, the big northern I, offensive line? Just you – know, Pennsylvania still, <laughs> right? And that, yeah, and yeah. That, uh, yeah, absolutely. I don't know, how's that, how's that how's for it, stereotype? How's that difference than like a Wisconsin line or a Nebraska corn. line? Corn, corn fed. Corn right. fed, cheese fed, and – yeah. Steel guys. Steel versus auto. I don't know. I don't know. What. <laughs> that's, that's right. Everybody knows what we're talking about. Look, going to, uh, against Charlotte. Catholic. Catholic. I, did, I was go. not there going to do that. I was afraid <laughs> to do that. All right, Ross. What are you looking for Saturday against Charlotte? Because I think Charlotte's offense will be better than Syracuse's. Uh, for you to see improvement for North Carolina on the defensive side, we'll use that one. What has to happen Saturday against Charlotte? I'm looking at UNC scouting their next head coach. And Will Healy. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he, everybody seems to love him. Charlotte gave App State some, some struggles up until, I think, the third or fourth quarter. Got a buddy, Robert Hogwood, who's live texting me the whole game. But, um, I mean, I haven't seen Charlotte play a single game in my whole life, so I don't know what they're going to be looking for. <laughs> but for the UNC side, obviously, you want to get a big lead. You want to pad the stats. You want to get your, your star play. Get those passes working with Diami Brown, Daz Newsom, Bo Corrales. See if you can execute some deep passes. Pad those stats. Get those guys set for some All-ACC awards. And then take, you know, take Sam Howell out by the fourth quarter, I think, um, and rest some of your other guys. Because then you get a really big extended bye week if you can uh, get some, build some depth and get a lot of players' action. That's what you want. You want by the end of the third, fourth quarter, you want to be able to put in all your second-team players and really get some good experience. Because throwing guys in at the fourth quarter when it's meaningless, or for spot reps in different quarters, that doesn't mean much. You want them to play back-to-back series, you know, Miles Murphy, Cayman Rucker, Eugene Asante, all the backup defenders, and really build some depth on the offensive line where guys can make some mistakes, you know, get Jonathan Adorner out there, you know, play people at different spots in the offensive line, and that's the goal. I mean, that's the goal in any any game against a, a team like this. But, I mean, I don't think Charlotte's a team they should overlook because we've seen crazier things happen. Greg, on the Sam Howell front, we always have to talk about him once. Jason said he wants to see Sam Howell just take the free stuff. And listening to Phil Longo today, they're going to have to deal with teams not allowing that over-the-top stuff. Um, And that was easy money for Carolina last year. And it didn't seem like Sam really took the free stuff enough on Saturday against Syracuse. How difficult is that going to be for a guy, uh, Howell's mentality? 
Yeah, we've talked about him being a gunslinger from day one. Um, and when you're when you're an accurate thrower and you've got good wide receivers like you know this team has, like we saw last year, you want to take those deep shots. And if teams are desperately trying to take that away from you, um, it's a problem. It's like a it's like a you know, a great three point shooter wanting to take three point shots, but if they're running you off the line. You have to find some other way to be effective. Um, and we know Sam can make all the passes, and he that's why you know, over the middle. Uh, underneath those, those 20 yard marks he graded out you know north of 90 in some of those passes so there's no question he can do it but to your point tommy it's that mentality it's that pride thing of his is like the one thing i want to do more than anything is hit on these deep balls right everybody loves the deep ball and um so yeah that's that's the maturation part of it for him and that's going to be a phil longo thing it's like look you've got all these weapons around you um, you're going to get the stats. Not that Sam's about stats anyway, uh, but you're not going to have to make the explosive plays. And you've got running backs. You've got wide receivers. Just just take what's given to you, and let's just march up and down the field. And so it will be a learning curve for Sam, uh, but there's no doubt he's going to be peeking up and trying to find – I mean, it's not like Phil's going to get rid of the vertical routes, right? He's still going to be have at least one during these sets. And so it's going to be tempting for Sam to – to look over and, and see, you know, do I have an alley? And he'll take those shots. Uh, but, but it's certainly going to be a process for him. Yeah, Michael Carter should have just a huge year catching the football. Yep. Yeah, on that note, one thing that really stood out to me was, maybe a couple times, Sam Howell's so good at throwing the, the ball in the flat to his wide receivers at a very sharp, crisp, to give the, the, give the guy some time. I mean, I remember so many times uh, quarterbacks throw the ball and it's a, it's a soft, looping ball to the running back, and the defenders are right there. And I just noticed he's such in rhythm with his running backs where it's just a crisp, regular throw just in the flat. It's a short pass, but so accurate and it's in stride, and that really is huge for, for Michael Carter and Javante Williams. That stood out to me. Cause I remember two or three years ago when we were dealing with Nathan Elliott and Chaz Surratt and Brandon Harris at quarterback, we were at a practice, Greg. Mark, we struggled with that throw. Did it? Yeah, I mean, it's not the easiest pass to make. I remember Greg looked at me. He's like, these guys can't pass their ball to the running back like 10 yards. <laughs> That's not a good sign. And you can – Sam's touching the ball, on the, or even those short passes, I think is huge. And we, like you just said, Tommy, I mean, they're using that tailback pass a lot. And I think Michael Carter and, and Javante were the two best players on the field yesterday or on Saturday. Well, just think about how we grew up. I mean, right, if you're playing in the street, you're telling somebody either go long or go to the car and, and hang a right. And you can yeah. make those throws. But when you're talking about a guy like Michael Carter and Javante Williams, we'll take those two. I mean, if you're throwing the swing pass to Michael Carter where he's running away from you and running up the field, so you're throwing at an angle away from you, and then you make that same throw to Javante Williams, well, they're going at different speeds. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have that timing. And the fact that he can fire it out there, like you say, Ross, really speaks to his talent level because that is a very difficult throw. That's a much more uh, challenging throw to make than just a standard go route or a post route. You have to have that, that chemistry, but you also have to have the ability to, to have the timing to make that throw accurately. And, yeah, I mean, if, if he keeps doing that, I mean, it's going to be there. It's, that's going to be there, and those little crossing routes over the middle is going to be there. And at some point, a defense is going to have to say, look, they're either going to pick us to death going down the field we're going to have to take some chances. And if you take chances, you take somebody out of the secondary, that's when you get some of those opportunities down the field. Um, so 
as a defense, you want to take away what a team does best. Uh, but if they do everything well, I don't know that there's a whole lot you can do. Yeah, and you'll see that pump fake to Carter and then over the top to Diami. Or they can run the old arena football approach like Syracuse did on that one play. And have yeah, the, that was crazy. I, I thought <laughs> I'd hit the channel button and flipped it over to the old arena game. Let's, uh, let's close this podcast. Something that came up during the ball game on Saturday um, was a letter um, or an article about uh, postponing games that came up in the Virginia Tech-Virginia um, episode where Virginia Tech-Virginia game is canceled. And I'll start with you, Greg, since uh, we talked about it a little bit off air. The possibility for games to be canceled, possibility for seasons to be canceled, what is the threshold? And I ask that because I see Virginia Tech, Virginia get canceled because of Virginia Tech's issues. But then I see, was it uh, Georgia Southern was missing 33 guys? And they like, won. Did they win still? Yeah, they beat Campbell. And that. Uh, to be honest, Campbell's helmets were on fire in that game. I love those helmets. But those teams, I think Oklahoma had a bunch of suspensions or something. But who decides what the threshold is for a game not to be played? So, first off, for the season, right, what we need to understand is for all of these fall sports for the ACC, as long as you have a majority of teams playing. Sorry. So, for football, I mean, for all these sports, for football, you have eight as long as you've got eight teams willing to continue, you'll finish the season. Now, that's relevant because not everybody voted to play this season within the ACC. There's a, there's a handful of teams that, that voted against it. And so I only make that note because, you know, if you have some other teams that continue to have COVID issues, they say, you know what, we're going to pull the plug. We're not going to finish this year. Then it becomes like a talking point. I don't think we're going to get there. I don't think it's going to be an issue. It's just kind of more of a note than any kind of breaking news. Uh, but that's kind of where you stand season-wide. Within the game, though, you're really you, – the discretion is left up to the teams. The only guidance that the ACC really provides is you have to have seven scholarship offensive linemen available to play. Huh. Uh, beyond that, it's really do you have enough players to feel comfortable playing. Um, and if, if a team makes the decision that, hey, we don't have enough guys, we're feel, we feel comfortable, at that point it's either you postpone it or you can you – can, if you can't postpone it and can't reschedule it, you get to a point where you can deem it a, a no contest. Um, how that works in terms of wins and losses, you know, we'll have to wait and see if that, that plays out. But I think people, people need to understand that the reason the ACC went to the 10 plus one is because they wanted an extra game for each team to fill out the ACC network schedule. That's why that wording was in there that the non-conference game had to be played within your own home state, which pretty much kind of limits you to playing in your home stadium. Um, and that, that helps with the revenue. Money drives everything, right? We've already talked about it with North Carolina's athletic department. You, um, everybody's taking pay cuts. And if you're not taking a pay cut, you're being furloughed two weeks. It's a bad situation. Uh, that's the tip of the iceberg. I think there's going to be much more difficult conversations to come, but you, you need the money, right? And every single team is in that situation. And so I don't think a team is going to be able to say, Hey, uh, you know, we don't want to play in North Carolina next week. So we're going to say that you know, we have these guys that are in quarantine and we're just going to bail to save our rear end so we can play later. That, that sounds good as a conspiracy theory. I don't think that's ever going to play out. These teams want to play. They need to play financially. 
uh, to, to make sure you know, they keep all their sports or at least keep as many sports as they can on campus. Um, so I, I get that conversation as, as a talking point, but I don't think it's realistic. And so I think teams are going to play as much as they can. But this is, why, this is why the ACC said when the schedule came out, everybody be prepared to be flexible. You could play a game Saturday, start looking at your next opponent on Sunday, and we may call you and say, hey, you know what? You're preparing for Charlotte on Saturday, Carolina. You're going to play Virginia instead. Sorry, that's how it goes. Uh, we haven't seen that yet, but now that we are seeing games being rearranged, you kind of kick down the road a little bit, some of those available spaces for flexibility are, are diminishing. And so you may get to a situation where they say, okay, you know what? We can't, we can't massage the schedule anymore. We're just going to have to make some changes. Um, and so that'll be, that'll be fascinating to see if that plays out. Yeah, I think Duke and Virginia are playing this coming weekend rather than Virginia Tech and Virginia. Uh, it's strange yeah. to me, Ross. Um, I mean, I got nothing to add. Greg's the expert on this. Look, the man, honesty is the best policy. I appreciate it. Rate, review, that. and subscribe is what I have to add. Yeah. Um, <laughs> subscribe on YouTube. Hey. And what about Johnny T-shirt? Yeah, go on to the premium message boards and get that 10% off discount code, Johnny T-shirt, JohnnyT-shirt.com. Um, yeah, we got to be flexible and got to adapt during these times. Crazy life times. Life lessons for everybody. <laughs> Not just these times, all times. That's right. Inside Carolina Podcast, On the Beat. I've been your host, Tommy Ashley. Ross Martin, Greg Barnes have joined me. Johnny T-Shirt and JohnnyT-Shirt.com have sponsored us. Rate, review, and subscribe. You can always do that. Get us anytime you need on your mobile device. Guys, appreciate you joining me. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by JohnnyT-Shirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase.